This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 41. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur entrepreneur and you are listening to the before the millions podcast hey this is mark asquith the host of the seven minute mentor podcast global entrepreneur and all-round geek and you are listening to the before the millions podcast i am mc lobster the cashflow ninja and you're listening to before the millions podcast you're listening to the before the millions podcast but whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye hey what's up what's going on btm community we're back for another week another installment of the before the millions podcast on today's episode find out if your house is an asset or a liability what's an asset the funny thing about an asset is an accountant's definition of an asset and an investor's definition of an asset are two totally different things. So whose viewpoint do you have and why? On today's show, we are speaking with investor Joseph Goslin. Joseph started out in the single family space. He bought his first single family in Israel, and he's since moved on to the multifamily space. He has a brokerage and a few other businesses in the real estate realm. The earlier this year, Joseph was able to successfully become a lifestyle entrepreneur. He has successfully left his day job and he couldn't be any happier, guys. He, he explains to us exactly how he did it, why he did it, and how you can do it too. So great episode today, guys. I can't wait to get to the meat and potatoes of today's show. You're also going to learn what an asset is from an investor's point of view. And lastly, on this episode, you'll learn what OPM is and how to use it to scale your real estate investing dream today. So tune in. The next few episodes are pretty exciting as well. You know, we have uh, an investor coming on next episode to talk about uh, property management, how to find great property management, because we want to be able to invest in real estate and have it be passive. In order to do that, you need a property manager or a property management team. So we're going to talk about that vital aspect of uh, real estate investing. And then on another upcoming episode, we're going to talk about uh, how to find deals, how to talk to sellers. Finding deals is one of the hardest things to do. Knowing where to find deals is one of the hardest things to do. Knowing how to start looking for deals. So this episode is really going to touch on a lot of that. And then also how to speak to the seller once you do find a deal, how to make sure that you're solving a problem. So the rest of the month is going to be amazing, guys, in a nutshell. So make sure that you tune in. Make sure that you're subscribed. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, make sure that you tell a friend. You know, I love the idea of lifestyle design. I think that we're all put on this earth to fulfill some type of mission. And you can't do that spending most of your time doing something that you're not passionate about. So without further ado, let's get to the tip of the week. DeRay's tip of the week. Okay, so tip of the week 
falls right in line with the theme of today's episode. Is your house an asset or a liability? Hmm. Well, let me say this. Whenever somebody tells you that you're getting a 4% interest rate on your car, you're getting an 8% interest rate on your house, what does that really mean? Lots of the time, we don't take the time to really figure out what that means. You know, if you buy a house for $100,000 and the interest rate is 8%, the better part of us wants to say, oh, okay, I'm paying $8,000 in interest. Not too bad. But things don't really break down like that. And we talk about this extensively on today's episode. But I want to make it clear here in the tip of the week, because I actually got some numbers to break it down for you guys. On the episode, I was kind of just, I'm figuring out numbers in my head, but I wanted to get you guys some concrete evidence, some concrete facts. And I was pretty accurate, actually. So if you take out a $100,000 loan, if you buy a $100,000 house and your interest rate is 8% and you're wondering if you're paying around $8,000 or a little bit more, a little bit less, it's not quite the case. It's actually not the case at all. In fact, on a 30-year loan, your monthly payment would be $733. On that same 30-year loan, paying that much money every single month, you would have paid a total of $263,000. $264 if you round up on a $100,000 house. So that means that in interest, so $264 minus the $100,000 that the house originally cost is $164. So in interest, you would have paid $164,000. Isn't that crazy? You're paying more than double for the house if you're the one paying for it. Here's a quick hack, though. And it's not a hack that many people would probably like, but it's still a hack. And there are better hacks. And I talk about some other hacks on, I believe, episode 32 with Jordan Goodman. But if you just change that 30-year loan to a 15-year loan, you know, we're talking about your primary residence, by the way. Your monthly payment goes from $733 to $952. So a little over $200 more, but you're cutting the time in half. And what happens is the total amount paid goes from $264,000 to $171,000. So total interest paid is $71,000 as opposed to $164,000. It's still a lot of interest. Still a liability. Well, there we go. I just gave away the answer. But I mean, it's a fix. It doesn't stop the bleeding. So that's the tip of the week, guys. Know your interest rate. Know what it means. Same thing with your car note. Know what it means. And I can keep going, guys. I can make it worse. You know, first off, your interest is not $8,000. It's $164,000. You're paying way more interest than you are actually paying for the value of the house. It's crazy. Second off, what happens is your interest is front loaded. So what happens is in a month, you'll be paying about $750 towards interest and only about $55 towards that 100K debt. So what happens is in the first five to seven years, and we're going to talk again, we're going to talk about this on the episode, but in the first five to seven years, most of the money that you're paying is going straight to interest. And if you're wondering what I mean by straight to interest, how about 93% on average is going to interest. So if your monthly payment is $805, 
on a 30-year mortgage for a $100,000 house, $750 every single month is going to interest while only about $55 is going towards paying that 100K debt down. $55. And guess what? I'm going to keep tacking things on at the end so you guys know how serious it is. The bank is banking on you, no pun intended. The bank is banking on you wanting to move after five years. That is the average. That is standard. That is what most people do. Everybody moves between five to seven years. So you never actually get around to paying down any principal. So you're constantly in the cycle paying the bank tons of interest. So they're getting paid in full while you're not building any equity in your home. You're moving every five to seven years. They know for a fact that most homeowners are going to move within five to seven years. So they front load all the interest, they get paid in totality, you're left with nothing, and you start all over again, and you keep doing that. Talk about a tip, right? You have to be aware of these things. So I ask, is your home an asset or a liability? Let's get to the show and find out. And now your feature presentation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Back to another episode of the Before the Millions podcast, the podcast all about lifestyle design through real estate. On today's show, we have Mr. Joseph Goslin. Joseph, how's it going? Doing great. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. I am excited to have you on the show. Joseph is a unique entrepreneur, and we are about to get into his story. He has a fascinating story. But Joseph, really, really quick, before we get into your backstory, just give us like a feel on what you currently do and kind of the things that you're involved in today. And then we'll kind of uh, go in the time machine. Yeah, sure. So what I do today is multifamily, right? We buy reposition and, and hold multifamily properties. We're talking larger ones, a hundred units plus Uh, we bring a group of investors and we give them great returns. That's what we do today. That's going to be good. So Joseph, let's take it back. I mean, I think you own and manage quite a few units today and you started by buying one property in Israel where you lived at the time. And, you know, we'll work our way up to that first property. But before that, let's take it back. Let's go to college or, or maybe high school and, and talk about younger Joseph and what you were doing at the time and kind of your mindset, what your goals were. Yeah. So when I was 17, I, I was born and raised in Israel, right? So when I was 17, I came to visit some family I have in the States and uh, that was the moment, right? It's like, I figured, okay, I got to go there, right? I got to move and live in the States because there's so much opportunity and there's so much fertile land, right? Where you can come in and advance and hard work really pays off. So that's where really it started with me back when I was 17. In Israel, everybody after high school go to the military service. Uh, so I was an officer in the IDF. And I was raised always with the notion of go to school, get great grades, go to the military after that, go to school, get your engineering degree, and then try to find a job where you can stay there till pension. That's the, the mentality I was uh, raised with. We, uh, I grew up a single family. We didn't have a lot, a single parent family, right? But when I was here, I got exposed to other things, right? And when I went to college, even though I was learning IT, I started looking at other things and everybody gets started with Rich Dad Poor Dad. So I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and, and all the other investment books. And then my wife and I were still in, in college. Then I graduated, she was still in college. 
got myself a job, you know, in IT. My degree is engineering in IT. And we said, okay, let's buy a house for ourselves. Let's buy a property to live in, right? But we bought something that was a little bit too big for us. Young couple, no kids. My wife was still a student at the time after we got married. So we said, you know what? Let's rent it out and stay in that little apartment that we, we were renting ourselves. Uh, and then when, you know, kids comes along and so on, we'll, we'll move to the bigger property. So we became kind of like accidental landlord. That was not the plan. But once you do that, now suddenly, well, wait a second, there's income coming in and there's benefits and it kind of clicked, right? That's where my story with real estate really started. I love that. I love that. And you talk about reading some of these real estate books and, you know, kind of brushing up on your financial literacy at an early age. So you had in the back of your mind the the know-how or maybe just just conceptually, you know, what an asset is, what a liability is and and kind of how to grow your the things in your asset and your how to grow your asset portfolio. But you were young, you were in college, and even though you had read those books and you possibly or probably knew that buying your primary home was going to be a liability. What maybe was your thought process back then after reading those books and still buying a property uh, for you and your wife to live in before buying an investment property? I understand that, you know, eventually you guys ended up turning that into a cash flowing asset. But originally, you know, you guys had had went into it with the intent of living in that home and you had already kind of brushed up on real estate literacy. And that's something that I see a lot of people do. So I was just, I'm just wondering what your thought process was. And then at what point did that kind of all change for you? So it's twofold, right? One thing is Israeli culture is very much geared toward ownership versus renting. Here in the U.S., it's completely different. You also have to remember that was, what, 2005, right? So millennials were not out there and, and didn't have that shift in preferences. Baby boomers were still busy raising kids, right? So the whole mindset of rent versus own, especially back in Israel, totally shifted towards own. So part of it is cultural, right? The other part of it is it's a psyche thing, right? It, it, buying you for your home is not an investment. It's an emotional decision. Right up until today, I could have a conversation with my wife about why does it not make sense to pay down our own home and why buying a, your own home is not really a good financial decision. And she'll go, "Yes, I get that, but I still want it." Yeah. Right. So it's an emotional thing for a lot of people. It's got nothing to do with financial decisions. I love that answer. I mean, you're you're spot on. I mean, that's the reason why I think that people who are educated in this space. Uh, still go ahead and, and make that purchase because I mean it's something that it's based on emotion. It's something that it's the American dream, honestly. I mean, something being a homeowner, buying your first home, like that's such an accomplishment, especially you know out of college. That's that's the next thing everybody wants to do: buy a home and start a family. So definitely agree on that point. So maybe let's talk about why you believe that buying your primary home or buy, buying a home to live in is not an asset. Why would that not be an asset? There are a lot of people who think that it's an asset, and for the longest of time, even before it that came out, there was a common uh, conception that, you know, buying your home is an asset. And the reason it's an asset is because you're able to, quote unquote, write off the interest, ta the tax on interest. So maybe talk about why you think your home is not an asset. So, okay, let me answer that in a few steps, right? First of all, it's not an asset because it's the way the banks make money. 
So anyone that uh, is buying a home, most people don't understand what amortization table is all about. When you look at an amortization table, basically your bank tells you you pay 5% interest, right? The way they do it is they take the 5% or most of the 5% of the entire amount within the first five years, knowing that 90-something percent of the people will either refinance or sell their home within five to seven years. If anybody looks at their equity, their principal in their home, they see that in the first five years of the mortgage, you barely touch it. You drop it like peanuts every month, and only after like six or seven years, you start seeing chunks getting off that principal. That's how banks make their money. That's how they can afford that promise of, I will give you a fixed rate for 30 years. It's because in years 20 and 25 and 30, there's barely any interest they still owed, right? That's the big misconception, right? If you buy your own home and you leave it within seven years or you sell it within seven years, you got zero equity built into it. And, and that's the big deception. That's the big misconception that a lot of people think it's an asset, right? The other side of things is when I buy an asset, it pays me, not the other way around. I don't have to pay money in order to keep it. I don't have to pay money to paint the walls, to fix the roofs, to, to do the gutters, right? That's when I buy an asset. But when you buy a home, that's all on you, yeah. right? It's your cost. So, so this is really where buying your own home, that's not an asset. That's a liability. Touching on both of your points, you know, point number one, you know, if you if you're buying a hundred thousand dollar house, and you know, and I'm just I'm just making up numbers, but these numbers may be pretty accurate. I'm just I'm just kind of thinking. But if you're buying a hundred thousand dollar house and your interest rate is eight percent, I mean, it may seem as though your interest rate is just eight thousand dollars. That's how I think most people think about interest when they talk about interest rates that, oh, my interest rate is 8%. But as you said, if you actually look at your statements, if you actually pay attention and you know what an amortization table is, and you look at that amortization table, you realize that the way these things are structured, they front load all the interest. Like you said, you're not really paying principal until you've paid down a chunk of that interest. So in the earlier years, in the first five to seven years, you know, you're paying down, you're literally just paying interest on your property. And what's crazy is as much as, you know, let's say you do eventually pay off that $100,000 house in 30 years. It may seem as though you were only supposed to pay $8,000 worth of interest. But if you actually calculate the amount of that you paid on a $100,000 house, $230,000 yeah, so it's annual. <laughs> exactly. It far exceeds the cost of the house, the amount of interest that you pay. And you pay a lot of that interest in the first five to seven years. So as you said, when you kind of, you know, the bank is banking on the fact that they know that most people will want to move into a new house within five to seven years. They know that that's what the American is going to do. They know for a fact that that's what people are looking to do. So they're always going to win the system that they've created. So you have to know what's going on. And we went into point number two. Again, you're spot on with that point because when it comes to the the idea of risk, you know, what the I guess the the point I want the listeners to take away from this conversation is that most people, they pay to take all the risks. So if you're investing in a 401k, you are literally using your hard-earned dollars to invest and you're taking all the risk. So if the stock goes down to zero, you have no insurance. There's, you can't recoup that loss. That loss is gone. And you've paid for that risk. You know, your house, 
you know, if the market turns, you're paying for that risk. All of that is coming out of your pocket. And the rich, the wealthy investors, we don't pay for risk. As much as it seems like we take on a lot of debt, we're not the ones paying for risk. And they say, you know, if you're ever going to take on risk, make sure it's a little bit. Like if you're ever going to take on debt, make sure it's a little bit. But if you do happen to take on large amounts of debt, make sure somebody else is paying for it. So if you're ever, ever, ever in a situation in which you want to buy real estate or you want to buy, you want to buy, you want to figure out how to start investing and you want to start, you know, putting your money to work and start, I guess, being risky, quote unquote, the only situation in which you should do something like that is if somebody else is paying for that risk. You should never take on all the risk and then be the one paying for it. That is not smart investing. So Joseph, I love it. So maybe let's talk about what, what I just alluded to with the 401k. You know, you had a 401k plan when you were working at your, at your W-2 corporate job. How did you feel about that plan? And you know, what, what kind of transpired as you began to transition into a real estate investor? Yeah, so I had a, an interesting journey with the 401k, right? So when I came in was 2007, we moved to the United States, which was just before the big crash. And I had no idea what a 401k is. My dad didn't have a 401k. Yeah, that concept doesn't exist back home. So I was just told, you know what, just put this amount of money over there because the company will match it and, and you'll be fine. So I just blindly trusted some people and I put in things into there. And of course, 2008 came in and wiped it all away. And then um, I just didn't educate myself about what a 401k is, how to operate it, uh, strategies with 401ks, which are, there are strategies. And then at some point I realized, wait a second, there is an interesting amount of money over here. Uh, I think it hit like $50,000 at some point. And I was going, oh, okay, maybe I should pay attention to what, what that is, right? So I, I learned a little bit and my research came up with a few things. And then there is good things and bad things about a 401k, right? When you're a W-2 employee and your empl employer will match it, it's free money right? You can take it and you can do that. The challenge with the 401k is you have zero control over that money. You hand it over, they give you a fixed set of choices, right? You can't do whatever you want with it. You're going to have to work within the parameters of the plan. And then nobody ever educates people. And I talk to people that are really smart, like doctors and lawyers and IT engineers, and they don't know the difference between index funds and mutual funds and, and house funds. And you realize that people are just dumping money randomly. Sometimes it's based on whatever this thing claims to do last year. Sometimes it's any mini, mini, mo, right? Sometimes they just dump it all in one. And then you're blindly trusting that the guys up in Wall Street that runs the hedge funds, the mutual funds, are going to make the right peak. But if you look historically, almost none of those funds has consistently uh, overperformed the index. That's one thing. And I'm a little bit of a control freak. I don't like other people managing my money, right? And the returns up until a year or a year ago, two years ago, were not that great, right? Think about uh, 20, uh, 2010, 11, 12, 13, even 14. The market was not doing that great, uh, especially not those mutual funds. So when I started um, learning about these things, I learned about something called self-directed IRA, right? And then I realized, wait, I can keep it tax deferred, but then I get control. We can talk about 
self-directed IRAs a little bit later, but I want to touch on, on the self-deferred, uh, tax-deferred kind of point because everybody look at 401k is like, what? It's tax-free, right? Um, and then, no, it's not tax-free. It's tax-deferred. The man, the man still wants to get paid, right? So what the premise of a 401k says that when you'll be older, you'll be poor. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Well, I don't know about you, but I want to have more money when I retire, not less money when I retire, right? So my tax bracket is not necessarily going to be lower. If anything, most likely it will be higher between tax regulation changes over time and the fact that I'm working hard to build my wealth and my assets, right? I plan on being on a higher tax bracket when I retire. So for me to put money to pay taxes later makes no sense. Right now, the other challenge is with the 401ks is we all grew up in a world where our parents and grandparents had pensions, right? You retire and then you have income for the rest of your life. Well, uh, with the 401k, that doesn't exist anymore. When you retire, you have what you have in there and that's it. That's two problems. One, 55% of Americans have less than $10,000 in their retirement accounts. That's a scary thought, right? And then the other thing is most Americans don't know how to manage their finances. That's how you get to point number one, right? But they don't know how to manage. They get handed over a nest egg and they don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to make it bigger. They don't know what's the threshold of which if you draw more than that, you're risking having it shrunk. So I personally believe that in about 15 to 20 years, this country is going to meet a major crisis because in the last couple of years, that's the first years people actually retire with a 401k plan. 10, 15 years, 20 years down the road, we're going to see what happens when those nest eggs deplete. And modern medicine is, is, is extending everybody's life, but it costs a ton more. Right. I don't know. What do you think about that? I'm I'm scared from that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're spot on. It's crazy because, um, like you said, I mean, American born citizens, at least, uh, you know, from a generational aspect, uh, grandparents and parents, they, they had pensions. They had these plans in place to where when they retired, they were literally, you know, they were literally able to live off the money that they retired with. And eventually that got taken away to where now, you know, with this 401k, you're only able to retire off of what you put in there, what you and your employer puts in there. There's no extra money going in there. There's no safety net, you know, and it's one of those things to where it's like cross your fingers retirement because you're not going to know if you're going to have enough to retire until you retire. And by then it's too late. You know, so that's something that, that is super scary for a lot, a lot of people that, that are going to be retiring here in the next 10, 15, 20 years, because it's one of those things where you're just crossing your fingers and hoping that the government had a great plan for you. And then you're not you're, you're really not going to know. So we're going to we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about how to, you know, if somebody doesn't want to spend a whole bunch of time, if somebody doesn't want to get into real estate, what's the best way to guard to safeguard your finances and to invest? And I want you to kind of maybe shed some light on that, because, you know, I think that we we've nailed the point enough now to where it's just like okay like i understand what i'm doing is not the right way to do things but if i don't want to be an active investor what what are some of my options if 
I want to guard my time and still do the things I love and still be able to work my nine to five job. You know, there are some people that want to do that. So what are some options for them? Because right now they're pigeonholed into a system that they have no say so in. And you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there that don't want to be in that system, that want to find a way out, that want to be able to have some type of control of their finances. Let's talk to this same subject, but let's maybe find a, a solution for some people that are looking to be helped. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a lot of other investing venues that are not necessarily active or too active. I always like to look at things, even in our own investment, of I call it headache to returns ratio. Right. If I can make returns, but it's going to be so much headache for me to deal with that, then I'll pass on this one. There's going to be a better opportunity that's not going to give me that much headache. Right. There's also a lot of individuals out there that love what they do, that love doing IT, that love doing whatever they're working. Doctors that do that from a sense of fulfillment, fulfillment, and they enjoy helping people. Right. So a lot of our customers are doctors and lawyers and IT engineers and we allow them to deploy their cash and get returns, great returns with zero headache. Real estate has so many different ways to do things, which is why I love real estate, right? You can get as creative as you can think and and be, really. I've seen people invest their funds through doing hard money loans where you're basically the bank, right? You, You let other people that are operators, you lend them the funds, Short term is usually hard money. is short term, right? And you get your returns. It's a little bit more involved. You still need to know who you're working with and so on. But that's one way to do it. Deploy your cash and get returns uh, with a little bit less risk because the it's backed by a piece of real estate, right? You don't loan 100%, right? You loan 70% or 60% loan to value. So even if something goes wrong, you still have something that's worth a lot more than you deploy. That's one way. Investing with someone that does flip, investing with someone that does a buy and hold. I personally do not believe in single family investment anymore. Uh, We can go into that discussion at some point. But investing with multifamily operators like myself, um, and there's quite a few of us out there, it doesn't have to be me, that's what we do. We bring in groups of investors together. They each put a certain amount of money and we go out and we buy a bigger property. Well, the, the logic behind it is when I buy a single family home, if I don't have a tenant in the house, then all the risk is on me. I pay the mortgage. I pay insurance. I pay bills. I pay somebody to lease it again, right? It's all on me. Versus if I have 100 units and we have 10 vacant. I still have enough money to pay the mortgage, to pay the salaries, to pay the maintenance, and to pay my investors, right? So when you look at things like that, it's a no-brainer to say, okay, not only the risk is a lot smaller over here, but I also get to share that risk with 10 more investors, right? I don't have to come up and put all the money investing into this. So I myself also am a passive investor in others' deals because I think you touched about that a little bit earlier today. I call it horizontal income streams, right? Uh, You call it passive income. Think of the the best way I like to describe it is table. Think of a table that have one leg. That's your vertical income, right? That's your day job, your W-2. If that leg falls, right, what's there to hold the table? Because on that table is your entire family versus 
that table has 27 smaller legs, right? One falls, you got 26 other to hold it up. And, and this is really where the more you have those, the more secure and safe you and your family can feel. I know for a fact that if anything happens to me, those passive investments that I've done, the check is still going to come in in the mail every quarter. Doesn't matter who's on the other side. The operators that I've trusted to do to invest with are going to send that check to my address every month. Doesn't matter if I'm here or not. My family gets that money. That also, once it builds up, allows you to choose what you want to do versus waking up in the morning and say, oh my God, I have to go to work. That's, that's the feeling that I didn't like when I had a W-2 and I know a lot of people share that feeling. For sure. I love that. That's well said. And it's one of those perfect solutions in which, you know, there are sponsors and there are, I guess, uh, general partners and lead partners and all types of deals. It doesn't have to be real estate. There's so many, there's so many sponsors out there in, in so many different niches and industries. You know, it, it just really just takes that relationship and building that trust with uh, not only with the, with the sponsor, but also that sponsor building that trust with you as a, as a passive investor. And I think that's an, that's an amazing, amazing way to kind of get out of the hole that a lot of people are pigeonholed into. And, you know, I can definitely relate to what you're saying. I, I raise money as well for multifamily deals. And it's one of those things to where that is going to cater to a certain demographic. That is going to cater to the accredited investor. That's going to cater to people who have at least $50,000 or $100,000 to spend. Mm-hmm. And the podcast, which I don't talk about a lot of my money raising efforts, and a lot of the bigger deals that, that I'm looking to get into because it's not for my target demographic. And the podcast is more so for people who are looking to get into their first, second investment property, maybe buy a duplex, triplex, or a fourplex, maybe even a 10 unit. Uh, some people are, are trying to buy a single family and it, depending on what area they're in, they're able to use that single family and turn it into a, a three unit. You know, so they're, they're renting out each room. This is mostly on the West Coast that, that you can do this. But yeah, so it's one of those things to where, okay, now we, we're, we're able to speak to the people who have large amounts of income and they're, it's being wasted in you know whatever whatever stock options whatever 401k plan they're in they're looking to maybe find a sponsor to help them place their money in real estate and, and they don't have to worry about all that headache now let's talk to let's talk about a solution for the people who don't have that nest egg who don't have that money who are looking to get started and they're like well you know I got five ten fifteen twenty thousand dollars in my 401k I got a couple you know grand here and I'm working 70 hours a week and I just I mean I can't get into these bigger crazier deals because what's crazy is and I don't want to go on a tangent here, but you know, just just kind of speaking to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about now, risk is so relative and uh, the government tries to protect us as individuals, especially as unaccredited individuals from risk. So what happens is what uh, the, the, you talked about the limited options in the 401k and how you're able to choose from a specific set of things. And the reason for a lot, of, a lot of systems like that is so that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, can regulate uh, and can kind of prevent uh, inexperienced investors from losing a lot of money. That, that's the whole goal for that, to make sure that, you know, if you're not accredited, there's a lot of deals that you don't get to see. I'm sure a lot of your deals that a lot of people will never be able to sniff because they don't even meet the qualifications. And it's crazy because that's where the wealthy become more wealthy. That's why they say the rich become more rich because the rich are able to have access to a lot of these deals because they meet the accreditation qualifications. Whereas the poor, and it's not, you know, and, and the middle class, but and, and and it's not by any fault of their own, but because the government and other people, which 
I mean, the government is not at fault for this. They're doing the right thing by wanting to protect them because a lot of times, you know, people will try to find a sponsor and maybe see if they can get rich quick. And they're not really financially savvy to where they, they place their money with somebody and their money's gone in a month or two months or they never hear from that person again, so on and so forth. So the government is doing a good job in the sense in you know, you have to to get access to great deals and great returns to where you could put in twenty five thousand dollars and make a million dollars. You have to already be, you know, accredited or you have to be a sophisticated investor, different, different levels of investors, but you have to at least be accredited. So kind of alluding to kind of speaking to that point, a non-traditional, non-accredited investor has a slim to no chance of becoming wealthy through their investments because they're not getting access to the proper investments. They're going to get access to these watered down investments that are going to give you two percent, five percent, you know, 10 percent cash on cash, whereas investors are, are seeing infinite ROI. Real investors are seeing infinite ROI on their money because they're getting access to these better deals. So, you know, to cut a long story short, there are people out there who are looking to maybe make the transition from what they're doing now and the amount of wealth that they have now to become accredited so that they can have access to some of these things. So, again, starting now for somebody who, who's in the corporate world and who has maybe a, a few thousand or, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 in the 401k, and they're not quite there yet, but they're looking to kind of diversify and be able to have more control of their income. What do you suggest that they start? doing? First of all, I agree with you, right? There's, there's a lot of opportunities that you get exposed to the more you do things, right? I think the model stands, it just scales down and up, right? So uh, what we do is catering to certain people, but there is a level above us, right? That only people that have $100 million get exposed to. Right. So um, the model is the same model, it just scales up and down. So even if you only have ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars, right, grab three, four more guys and suddenly you have a hundred thousand uh, dollars to invest, go buy a fourplex, right? And uh, go buy a six unit and get a loan and you're all partners and now you start growing. Now you start getting into the game. So even if you have, I don't know, five guys that have $5,000, it's still $25,000. You can go buy a $100,000 house, right? So what I'm saying is that I, I think I'm going to quote a 14-year-old kid, right? I don't know if you heard about <laughs> Caleb Maddox. Uh, he's a really nice, cool little kid that is very charismatic, right? The example he gives is if I stand right here and next to me stands Michael Jordan, right? Best basketball player in all time. Right? And there is a hoop in front of us, we each get the ball. I get to take the shot, and he's only allowed to hold the ball. I have 100% more chances of making this shot than him because he doesn't get to take the shot. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's all about it doesn't matter at which level you are. If you're not doing, if you're just sitting and holding the ball, you're never going to get anything. You're never going to make it or not. Right. So taking action is probably the number one get going kind of thing. Right. Every mile starts with a step. You got to take that step. And everybody that just sits and, and hold the ball will never make it. So I think that's where a lot of people are getting stuck on is just sitting and holding the ball. Perfectly said, Joseph. That, that was perfect. So let's let's transition. You know, you talked about your first single family purchase. Well, I talked about your first single family purchase in Israel. Maybe you should talk about it now. How did you transition from that first single family into into more investments? And then, uh, what sparked the transition from single family to multifamily? When we moved here in '07, right, the crash was going on all around us, and my wife kind of and I kind of realized 
that's probably the best market to invest in that we'll ever see in our lifetime, right? It was a perfect storm. So we sold the property back home, used that money that we've built over there um, in order to start investing over here. It wasn't that much, but it was a beginning for us, uh, which was great. And then we both got licensed. We learned the system. We found opportunities and we bought a few singles over the years. But somewhere in 2015, I had one of my properties I had to pay for foundation, right? Anybody that lives in North Texas knows that foundation issues are something every piece of property goes to, right? So we had to raise the foundation. When you raise a 1970 house, all the cast iron plumbing just crumbles, right? So we had to do completely new plumbing. Same year, we had a hailstorm. We had a water heater break that destroyed some of the flooring. We had a garage door go. Basically, within six months period, I had to cut $40,000 worth of checks on one property. And I had another property that needed a fence. That that was another $8,000. Another property that needed an AC, that's another $4,000. And I'm looking at my wife and say, well, that's not scalable. Hmm. That's all coming out of our own pockets. So I'm I'm a very analytic person. So at that point where I realized, okay, that's great, but it's not scalable. Right, because it, it goes cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, big expense, uh, wipes out that year's cash flow, right? Uh, and if you don't build your reserve accounts, you, you won't be able to pay those. So that's really where I started looking. I, I looked at everything, different kind of real estate, like medical and, and office and retail. I looked at other types of investment, like commodities and gold and, and annuities and uh, forex trading and, and all these things. And then I landed on multifamily is the one thing that made the most sense to me. Uh, So that's how I kind of decided, okay, I'm going to graduate from single family to multifamily. And um, then I started searching a property and then I realized, okay, wait, that's, that's a big boys club and they don't let anyone in and you knock on the doors and you send emails and you make phone calls and, and the brokers just don't return your call and they don't reply to your email. And I was sitting on a nice little stack of cash because I refinanced my singles and, and still wasn't getting the attention. So like I said earlier, we got licensed. So I'm a licensed uh, um, agent and my wife is a broker. So I said, okay, I'll just go and source it myself. So called calling, yellow letters, postcards, right? We talked about taking action earlier, right? Um, talked to a few owners. Some of them were just unreasonable with the prices, but one of them was reasonable. And then we started talking and I loved the property and we built this relationship and he actually did owner financing for us, which was a really fantastic deal for us uh, um, as the first one. So the first one I went in and, and we bought it ourselves. That's amazing. With, with the money we took out of the properties that we owned, right? So we refinanced, took the money out tax-free because it's a loan, right? Pushed it out, bought another property. So that's really the, the monopoly system for little houses and you buy a hotel. That's the idea, right? Build equity, refinance, take the cash, go invest in something else and move on. I love that. And instead of selling those properties, you just kept them in your portfolio and refinanced. How many properties did you have at the time? So I'm a big believer in buying real estate. I don't really believe in selling real estate, right? So even the one that got me started back home did very, very well in the last few years, right? To the point where it's almost double what I sold it for. But again, 
so did most of my other properties because we bought them in 09 and 10. So that's really where it is. It's, it's, I can't, even today, I can't financially justify selling those properties because my cost basis is so low. My capital gain is going to be huge, right? I don't think anybody should do 1031 in a seller's market. Right, do it all day long in the buyer's market, but don't do it in the seller's market. Yeah. Uh, because I've seen a lot of people get cornered on the timeline and just do stupid, stupid decisions. Right, just because they're cornered. I still own those little singles. Uh, um, I got many, four. Many, um, four? I think, four. I think I got four left uh, um, on the single wood. How many units was the uh, was the first multi? So my first multi was a small twenty-two unit. Okay, that's not small at all. <laughs> that's not small at all. That's nice. That's, that's amazing. And you were able to get that owner finance, which every time somebody says that on the show, I'm just like, man, like, how were you able to work that into a deal, especially your first multifamily? That's amazing. So it's just about building relationship, right? It's a person to person kind of thing. Does it trust you or not? Right. And this gentleman was 80 years old. Uh, the World War II generation, uh, just a stand-up gentleman. I'm, I'm telling you, they're not making them as they used to. I wish everybody, and he's, he could have done that deal on a napkin and I would be solid. That kind of a person that I, I just built trust, built relationship. I told him I don't want to spend that much to get into the down payments because I want to leave some uh, uh, funds for uh, the, the operations and all that. And he said, okay, let's just build a payment plan, right? So I did give him a chunk of money, right, for the down payment. That was about 15%, right? And then the rest to get to the 25, we said, okay, we'll do quarterly payments. That's really where it was. And and I can tell you that that got me started. And I'm very grateful till today for that person that, that gave me that start. What gave you the confidence to take down that property? What gave you the confidence to even seek that property? Was it was this property on market, off market? Uh, you said you were sending out mel- uh, yellow letters and things like that. But what gave you the confidence to to think that you can handle this? So, I mean, you went from no real estate experience to four or five single families and you sold one and, that, and then you're at four single families and then you buy a 22 unit apartment complex. So where, where, you know, there's something, there's something that happened in, in that, in that time era that kind of just boosted your confidence to be like, I can do this. Like, I think that's an amazing feat. So maybe talk about that. A few things. One, I, I don't manage it myself. Remember headache to returns ratio. Yeah. Right. So where's my time better spent dealing with tenants and toilets or finding the next deal, talking to investors, right? That, that's, that's really where my, my, my thing is, dollar productive hours. Best example I give is I'm really good at taking out the trash, right? Uh, my wife tells me and I do it really, really well, but I don't want to make a career out of it, right? Same thing, right? I can manage a 22-unit property, but I don't want to do it. I got a third-party property management company uh, and, and they're awesome. They're managing all of our properties. I work with them. So instead of dealing with 22, I deal with my regional supervisor, the owner of the company, right? Whoever I need to deal, it narrows down the amount of people I have to deal with. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's right? amazing. So that's that. Uh, in terms of uh, where do I get the confidence? Uh, mostly legwork, right? I researched everything. I got myself educated. I listened to podcasts. I read books. I, I went online, online communities like Bigger Pockets, right? I learned everything I could to give me that confidence to say, with the right team, 
I can make this happen. Yeah. And, and, and with the right team is a very important statement, right? Because real estate is a team sport. Yeah, I love that. That's honestly the key. Like if you, if you, listeners, if you want to take away anything else from this conversation, I mean, Henry Ford is one of the, one of the best team players that I've ever read about. He wasn't the smartest man in the world. He didn't know everything. He didn't know a whole lot. But what he did know is that if I had a team of people who are smarter than me in different arenas, I can be a leader. You know, I may not be the smartest person in the world, but I can be a great leader. And if I can lead people who are smarter than me and get my desired outcome, there's a story. Henry Ford was in his office one day and, you know, people are always asking him, you know, how are you, you know, how are you able to do the things that you do? And, you know, kind of, you know, how are you so smart and things like that? And, you know, it just seemed like his business was taking off and little, little did people know that he had a team of advisors, you know, in different arenas that were the smartest people in the world. So when people, you know, I think there was, there was like a test that somebody wanted to give him. I was like, Hey, like, I'm going to ask you like a series of questions and see how smart you are and how you're going to be able to answer these questions. So as those questions were, were spewing out, all he would do is pick up the telephone and based on the question and based on the arena that that, that question was in, he would call up that advisor and, and ask that advisor for the answer and then give the answer to the, to the person. And that, that's, how, that's how simple it literally has to be. Yeah. You know, and the same thing in real estate, you have, a, you have your lender, you have your broker, you have your property management team, you have your inspector, you have everybody, you have all the resources. If you know what you're doing, you have all the resources to help you be successful. You have to be that leader. You have to, you have to do your research. You have to get your education and then build your team. And once you build your team, again, it's a, real estate is a team effort is a team game and that'll make your life so much so much more easier so i love the fact that you have a property management team we're both in texas and i, I think we mentioned this before the show but you're in plano and you bought a 22 unit and the biggest red flag i see with with having a property management team for a small complex like that you know they say when it comes to scalability and having a property management team at least a full-time property management team it's it, the best way to go about doing that is if you have enough units to kind of cover the spread which in texas just kind of based on how everything is it looks like it starts around 60 or, or 70 units maybe even up to 100 units to where a property management team makes sense but you were able to do that with, with a 22 unit so there was a lot of meat on the bone maybe i don't know i kind of want you to kind of kind of fill us in on that how, how you're able to have a full-time property management team on a 22 unit so it's a third-party company. Uh, they manage, I think, over 5,000 units. Uh, they've been in business for 35 years. And they're in that sweet spot of size where they're not too small to be regional, no infrastructure at the beginning of their road. And they're not too big like the nationals where you're just another client in the system, right? So when I need the owner, I make a phone call and I'm on the phone with the owner right? Most of the time I work with my regional supervisor. So on the larger property, when we do have an onsite manager, if she's out for vacation or if she's out sick, there is another person showing up and sitting in that office for us, right? Because they have that infrastructure already built. So these guys are the ones that manage my property. So you're right. 22 cannot sustain a full-time person. But they take another full-time person that sits in another property and they send them over, right? So my maintenance guys are twice a week up there. My manager is three, four times a week up there. There's a 24-7 phone number that our residents can call and get addressed. We have SLA's uh, service level agreement of getting things done within 24 hours or less. Definitely a lot less in emergencies, right? So we have... My property management company, by extension, we have that infrastructure to handle whatever we need, even on a small property. 
as a 22 unit. Now, it does mean it costs us a little bit more, right? So when I need to send someone, I also have to pay for their mileage and I pay for their the time traveling. So ideally, yes, you want a larger one that have people on site, but it, even if you don't, still doable to get a third-party manager. Love it. Love it. That was a perfect answer. So that, that, that kind of clears up, you know, people who are looking to maybe buy anything from five units to, you know, 50, 60, 70 units, you know, what, what to do about that. Did you find this property management team before or after you approached the seller? Always before. It was before. So you already had them in place. You always want to build your team ahead of time, right? If you already have a property on the contract, it's too late to get your team together. Get your team ahead of time. I talked to, I think, six or seven different property management companies. The most important thing for me is to find people that share our philosophy. So I am not a slumlord. I'm not interested in being a slumlord, right? I'm a big believer in karma. And especially in the property classes that we buy, which is the C and B band, these are hardworking families. And we want to make sure that they have a great place to live in. They have a sense of community. Notice that I don't call them tenants. I call them residents, right? It comes down to the core of our values, even on the terminology. We, we don't own apartment complexes. We own apartment communities, right? We want to bring them in to feel at home. They deserve it. They're hardworking families. And just because they chose not to buy a house or they couldn't afford buying a house doesn't mean they don't get a home. Yeah, I love that. Right? So, so finding the right property management was critical for me. And then when you do get a property under contract, right, with the singles, it's a little bit easier because there's a billion inspectors out there you can hire that will do your inspections and due diligence. But when you get to the commercial space, there are some inspectors out there, but they will never be as good as your own team coming on site and, and getting their vendors out there to do that. We always run cameras underneath the sewer buildings, right, of the buildings, right? We always get our roofers to come up on the roofs. We always do a lot of due diligence, especially on the bigger properties. And I don't have a team of 30 people, but they do. Yeah. Right. So we come in, we swarm the property, we get it done in a few days, and 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 that's really where you want this in place. How are you going to get a commercial property on the contract if you don't already have a real estate transaction lawyer? Yeah. Right. So so that's kind of you really have to build your team. You need to engage your commercial mortgage broker ahead of time so that you can have half of the process already lined up before there's a property on the contract. And those teams, if we treat them like partners, they will be your advisors. They will be the team that tells you, ooh, don't go to that part of town because it's going to be rough. Right? Or this deal, we've seen it already four times in the last two years. It always has issues with plumbing. Right? This kind of stuff that you wouldn't get on your own. So building your team ahead of time, I think, is, is very important. I love that. Let's transition a little bit. We haven't, I don't think, I mean, maybe we've already kind of skipped over it, but you bought your first property in Israel. You bought four more single family homes and then you bought this 22 unit. All this while, are you still at work? And at what point do you finally take that exit from your W-2 job? Let's talk about that exact day. Well, that actually happened earlier this year. Oh, wow. My last day was in January, at the beginning of January, um, which means... After that, that 22, I also had 102 and a 28 all done 
under a W-2 job, right? But I can tell you it wasn't easy. It was stressful. It was a lot of time. It took a toll on me, on my family, right? But I knew that I'm doing it for a reason. I knew that I want to get out of my day job, my being an employee, right? And I wanted to move on to do real estate 100%. And then and, and that was the goal. And that's what we drove to. And that's what we made. So I had a goal of quitting my job in, in 2017. And I did. I submitted my uh, um, resignation. Um, well, I missed it by a couple of days. Uh, the rest but, of your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was the goal. And, and I worked really, really hard to make it. I'm sure some of your coworkers were well aware of what you were doing, that you were a real estate investor. How did they feel about that? Were they interested in getting in? Were they jealous? What, what was the overall consensus when it came to the people you were working with and them knowing that you had way different ambitions from probably what they had? So most of the people around you, right, will not have the drive that you do, right? Most of the people that do what we do feel a little bit on an island surrounded by like you said, you know, there's people that just want to do their W-2, get back home, and watch the next chapter of, of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, I don't watch TV. If I watch, it's intentional. So we don't have cable. I don't sit in front of TV and just uh, zap through the channels. And we talked about earlier, you, you don't get anywhere if you don't get started, right? The other piece of it, and this is something a lot of people or that's where they stop, is sacrifice, right? I knew that it's going to be a rough year. 2017 was a rough year for me and my family, right? Because I was working uh, about 80, 90 hours a week between my W-2 and my real estate job. And people around me looked at me and said, why are you doing that? You're crazy. Just rest and calm down. Stop doing this. But... And I didn't let it stop me, right? Some of my friends in IT were very encouraging, right? Some of them actually invested with me since then. But some of them were just, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to leave it with fidelity. And stuff. Okay, good luck. The other thing goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier. I was really surprised how many people that earn six-figure incomes don't have any financial oh, literacy, yeah. don't have any idea of what is 401k and and how to manage it and they're just clueless coasting through life yeah it's not about how much you make it's about how much you keep i know i i know lots of people in that same situation just i mean when i was when i was in corporate america just you know talking with my friends and knowing that these people made so much money but that didn't mean anything i mean you know you had somebody making $55,000 a year and you had somebody making $175,000 a year and they were still netting about the same exact thing. They had that almost about the same exact lifestyle. It was, there was no difference because there was no financial literacy. So I can totally relate. And it's one of those things to where you just hope, you know, you, you try to do as much as you can. You pr try to provide as much value as you can. You tell people exactly what your thought process is and, and why you're doing what you're doing, but you can't, it's almost like riding a bike. You can teach, you can, you can show, you can give an example, you know, but you really can't teach somebody how to ride a bike. You can show them, you can, you can give them examples, but they have to learn how to ride a bike. I mean, it's something that they have, you, you can't read about how to ride a bike in a book. You know, you have to go out and do that. You have to go out. You can't, I don't think there's any, there's ever been somebody who's learned how to ride a bike and not fallen. 
Like it's yeah. something you have to go and do it. You have to go and learn it. You can't be taught how to ride a bike. You have to go learn how to ride a bike. So it's just one of those things to where you can put it out there, man. But I mean, if people are not receiving it, you've done your job. And the people who are open and willing to receive, those are the people in which, you know, you want to help and, and change their lives. So I think that's amazing. One more subject before we kind of get to the final aspect of the show. Let's just say, and I had a listener approach me with this question the other day, so this is perfect. Let's just say, you know, somebody does kind of have their team in place. They're ready to get into multifamily. I actually even started talking to an owner and they're looking, it's looking prominent in which they can possibly, you know, see if they can get this deal under contract. And what most people do or most people should do is raise the money first or have the money first, have the, you know, have the team, have the finance, financial backing first, and then kind of go looking for property. But not everybody does it that way. Some people are successful in finding the property. You know, sometimes, sometimes people say, if you find a good deal, the money will come. Well, let's speak to that thought process. I'm just going to say, I definitely think you should have money prepared first, but there are some situations in which you, you don't have uh, money prepared first. So let's, let's talk about some creative ways to maybe, um, and not creative ways to finance your deal, like owner financing, but creative ways to, to raise money in a hurry. Is there an answer for that? Yeah. So it's back to sacrifice. So I did my first syndication deal all by myself, soup to nuts, but I had no partners. That means I did everything from sourcing the deal uh, negotiating it, underwriting it, put it under contract, securing finances, uh, raising equity and, and closing on it, everything. Me and my team, of course, but no partners. And I had two main learnings from that experience. One is never do that alone again. It's just too much work, too much stress, too much effort for one person to bear. And then the other thing is, Start raising the equity before you get the deal. So I didn't do that for my first one. And that was one of the lessons I learned is, can it be done? Absolutely, yes, I did it, right? But what it requires is a sacrifice, is grinding, is hustling, is, um, I know my numbers because I track them. I talked to 176 people in order to raise the amount of people and the amount of money we needed for our first indication. That was not fun. Right uh, now, with experience, and now I have a partner. We raised the same amount just uh, a, a few weeks ago in less than three days. Right, honestly, with like I don't know five six hours worth of work total, and that's the difference between getting your networks and getting your investors lined up ahead of time versus starting to figure out what is an investor and how to raise money after you already secured on the contract, right? Uh, so can it be done? Yes. What it will require? A lot of effort. Should you do it? I would recommend not to. I would recommend, <laughs> I would recommend walking around telling everybody, I'm going to do this. This is my plan. This is what we think is going to be reasonable returns that we're going to offer. And then start building your investor database. I tell people, pick up your phone, go through the list of people, write them down in an Excel file. Right? And then start ranking them. No way this guy is going to invest with me. Probably not going to invest with me. Maybe going to invest. Probably going to invest. Absolutely going to invest. Right? And be very, very careful with who you put in the absolutely going to invest. Most likely, 
you're wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yep. I've had that similar experience. That's, that's great advice. That's exactly what you should do. But yeah, I mean, my overall consensus when it comes to that is definitely have the money first. But again, people find themselves in situations in which they, they have a great deal on their hands. They don't want to pass it up. And, you know, they're, 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 I mean, like you said, that's when the rubber meets the road and you literally have to treat this as a grind and, because, I mean, there's a lot of things at stake, especially because now your reputation is at stake. And that's super important, especially in an industry where it may seem like we're, we're, it's a really big industry. But I mean, everybody knows everybody. Yeah, it's so the, a very small industry. Yeah. Exactly. So the minute somebody gets whiff of, you know, you, you, you flaking or not, not going through with the deal or whatever the case may be. I mean, it's bad. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? There's a couple of them, right? If you're looking for an inspirational, how do I eat an elephant, right? How do you tackle a big project? I love Gary Keller's The One Thing. Uh, It really helps you build a blueprint of how to tackle a big task, a big goal, right? Another book that I've been preaching around to people, and I think every business owner in America needs to read that, is called Profit First. It's not very famous, but it's a very important book about how to run your finances as a business owner because a lot of people, again, stumble into being business owners. And it's got nothing to do with real estate. This is just generic business skills. So that's another really good book. Yeah, definitely. And to kind of expand on that book, you know, the, the book is literally about what the title entails, Profit First, Taking Profit Out of Your Business First. Most people... It goes assets minus minus expenses equals profits. And if you live that way, if you live your your personal financial life that way and your business financial life that way, you tend not to have any profits at the end regardless because your expenses expand with your revenue. It's just how things happen. It's how we operate. It's it's what we do. It's called Parkinson's Law. So what Mike Michalowicz has has kind of, and he's not the person who kind of founded this, but he made a whole book on it, uh, which is called Profit First. He says that if you take your profit first, so if you take your, your, your revenue and you take your profit immediately out from your revenue, so no matter what, you take a certain percentage of profit out. If you don't have enough for expenses, then your expenses are probably too high. And also, if you don't have enough for expenses, then it forces you to be creative. It forces you to think outside of the box as to either I need to get rid of some of these expenses or I need to find a way to make more money so that I can cover these expenses. So it puts you in a position to think. You know, most people, when it comes to real estate investing, they say, oh, the thought process is, oh, real estate investing is a lot of work, so I can't do it. And that immediately uh, takes your thoughts from thinking about real estate investing to since I can't do it, I, you know, it just kind of shuts down the whole thought process. But if you change your thinking to real estate investing, how can I do that? then it, it, it kind of get, it forces you to think about a solution. And that's kind of the way the Profit First system works. So I love that book. And I also love the one thing by Gary Keller as well. So great, great, great recommendations. Second question, what is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Oh, so I'm addicted to Trello. So T-R-E-L-L-O, right? My life is managed and operated in Trello. So basically what this app is sticky notes, Right, So you can build multiple boards with sticky notes and you can share it with your team. Right, So we have a board for every property that we share with the team, right? Because I have a different manager for each uh, property and sometimes different regionals, right? And I have boards for my different businesses, 
right? Because we also have the brokerage and we have the, the group sponsorship business. So this is where my life is, right? And it's on the web, it's on the desktop, it's on my phone. I am able to kind of record thoughts whenever I need to. And then I just drag the sticky notes to wherever board or, or column I needed to. So definitely a productivity tool. Amazing, amazing! I love that. Definitely going to put that on the show notes. I might, I might have to check out Trello. Too many people talk about Trello, so that, that's amazing. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? And it's been about two months now, so I'm really, really interested. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoy the fact that I do what I have passion for. Yeah. That's absolutely what it is, right? It's being uh, wake up in the morning and can get can't wait to get into it, right? It, it's Every conversation I have is about what I like, right? Versus getting stuck in a meeting about uh, something you don't have a passion for anymore, yeah. right? And, and, you know, even when I was a W2 employee, I would strike conversations about real estate with, with some of my friends. And then at some point you can see them glaze over. It's kind of like, yeah. that's not their interest. It's like, okay. But now I talk to brokers. I talk to mortgage lenders. I talk to property management. I talk to all uh, people like you. All I talk to, everyone I talk to is interested in, in the things I'm interested. So that makes my life a lot more engaging and, and around my passion so that's the number one thing i love the most i love that that's a that's a very new unique answer i definitely love that and i can relate to that i remember long days and in, in meetings just staring out at the highway looking at cars pass by like i wish i wish i can feel the sun just kind of beaming on my face i wish i could be out there right now i'm in this boring meeting in which things i don't care about and when i again when you do try to talk about things and aspirations people just look at you kind of like what that is, why would you even think that's possible? <laughs> so yeah. I, mean, I love. I'm glad you've been able to make that, that transition. That that's phenomenal, and I hope that a lot of the listeners are on their way to making that transition because that's when you truly have control of your life. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Grind, right? And sometimes it means that you, you have to work when when the kids are doing something or that you, you have to be on a phone call with an investor uh, when, when they are going to sleep. So instead of giving them a kiss when they go to sleep, you kind of sneak up when they're already asleep and you give them the kiss, right? And, and it's kind of like I was willing to do the sacrifice because I knew it's a one, two year effort. It's not that every night I didn't see my kids, right? But especially when we were in that phase of raising equity for my first indication, that was a, a two months burst of extremely high volume of work, right? And in that two months, I'm, I'm very lucky to have a supporting wife, right? I would never be able to do anything without her. But that was sacrifice. That was a lot of work. That was missing on functions. That was missing on... I didn't watch football for like two years now. <laughs> and I love the Cowboys, right? Oh, uh, that's really where it is. It's priorities, right? Everything else except my family fell down in priority to doing this. How was your phone bill during those two months? <laughs> 180 <laughs> plus calls. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I bought a, a Bluetooth headset that, you know, one of those professional ones with with the microphone and everything because, you know, I was talking so much. I needed comfort and good audio and a lot of video sessions with people. And, yeah. you know, when we did our last raise, 
and we did the presentation, I got a lot of compliments of, oh, you're doing it so great and you do everything right and you have answers for everything. Oh yeah, I did it like 180 times already. Uh, I got it down already. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's no, there's no question somebody can ask me that I haven't answered already and there's no objections that haven't been risen that I didn't address. I love that. I love that. That's, I mean, repetition is the master of a lot of skills, so that, that's amazing. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? My wife, absolutely my wife. Uh, without her, and, and this is where, so we talked about not getting started, right? Not taking action. We talked about not being willing to sacrifice. That's the third main reason why people can't do it is they don't have the right support structure, right? I would never be able to do that if my wife would give me a hard time about the fact that I'm on the phone most of the time and I'm driving out to see properties on weekends and and all that, right? You asked me earlier, what does that new lifestyle gives me? It gives me the opportunity of shutting down my business in the afternoons and in the weekends, which I didn't have before because (laughs) that was the only time I had for my business, right? So really, without my wife, there's no way I would make it. Why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? Because intention doesn't move. Right? Intention doesn't compensate for sacrifice. Just because I want something doesn't mean I'm going to get it. You got to take the action. You got to be willing to sacrifice. You got to grind and hustle. And you look at all the self-made billionaires and millionaires out there. They're all grinders. They all started working hard. They all have this inner drive that they refuse to go to their grave with it inside them. They refuse to. Love it, love it. Well, Mr. Goslin, this has been spectacular. I'm, I love this. And I know that a lot of the listeners have taken away a ton of value from our conversation. If any of the listeners kind of want to reach out to you and learn a little bit more about you or get to learn, you know, some of the some of the offerings that you have, where can they find some of that information? Yeah, so we have a website, ebgacquisitions.com. You have all my contact details on there, uh, my email, my phone number. Uh, We're on social media, right? You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. So not that hard to find me. Just Google my name. I can't stress enough how amazing this has been. And, you know, this is one of those episodes to where it's just like it shed a lot of light on literally just kind of how to get started in, in, in investing, how to know uh, what to do as an investor, what, when and how to raise money, how to get into these deals. I think I think that you, you've been able to touch a great deal on how to invest passively, you know, and, and for those active investors looking to kind of get their feet where you've touched on how to be a sponsor and, you know, how to get a creative deal, whether or not you should get a deal before you raise the money. I think this has been an amazing episode. So Joseph, thank you again, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me.